I'd like to talk today about working in the theater and going to the theater at a time when the internet and electronic media and social media in particular play such a dominant and arguably oppressive role in our daily lives. Um, but first, let me describe a television commercial. Um, this commercial was fairly widely shown in the U.S., and it provoked a feeling of alarm in me every time I saw it. I don't know if you have a similar one here. Perhaps you do. It was an ad for a mobile phone, even though that doesn't become clear immediately in the ad. Instead, at first you think it's an automobile commercial because what you see are two sports cars racing along a Grand Prix-type urban raceway. And then one of the cars crashes spectacularly, resulting in a massive explosion. And then the perspective of the camera pulls back, and you see that the image is bordered. You realize you're watching a car chase from an action film on a screen. The viewer presumes it's a full-sized uh, cinema screen. Ah, but then the perspective changes again, and we realize the screen is actually very small, and it's, it's the screen of a mobile handheld device. A man holds the phone in one hand, and with the other hand, he makes a fist and pumps the air because he's so excited by the explosion and the car crash. And we understand now, yes, it's a mobile phone, and the selling point presumably is the image quality. But then, oddly, the perspective changes again to show us that the man is sitting in a large open-plan office at night, and he's totally alone. And this office is deserted, and all the lights are shut off, and the only light source is the screen on which he's watching his movie. And the perspective continues to pull back until we're outside this glass-walled skyscraper office building in a huge anonymous city. And we can see now that the man is isolated, alone inside this darkened building. And the office he's in takes up the entire floor. And he's indeed the only person in the entire, in the entire office, still here late at night. His feet are propped up on the desk, and he's got his phone in his hand. And it must be very late at night, because we can now see all the other buildings that surround his building. They're all coldly anonymous, international style office buildings. They're also open plan. They have glass walls that we can see inside. And they're all completely empty. Everyone in this entire business district of this city seemingly has left to go to dinner or out for drinks with friends or to a real movie or home to their families, except for this one poor bastard watching his action film <laughs> on a playing card-sized screen, all alone in this rather eerie cityscape. End of 15-second spot. So to sum up, what, what we have here is clearly a dystopian nightmare vision of a pathetic, possibly misanthropic urban drone being gulled into temporary obliviousness of his own numbing isolation by the only object from which he can derive any sense of intimacy, a mobile phone, and seemingly enjoying every moment of it. And yet, <clears throat> of course, the advertiser is assuming that what they're depicting will be widely regarded as desirable. Now, it could be that my feeling of alarm on seeing this is partly because I recognize myself in the image. Um, I like to think of myself as a reasonably diligent working writer, but most mornings I have to spend three or four minutes manually unplugging and decoupling the cables and power cords from the various devices that bring the internet into my apartment if I have any hope of getting some work done. Or it could be that this is just an inept or badly judged ad. But advertisers are generally fairly shrewd about what will appear to their customers. 
And there are many other similar examples, like the ad I saw recently of a girl in the front row of a concert texting another friend on the other side of the arena at the same concert about the concert. So it seems likely to me that there are many people for whom these really are appealing or comforting images, the isolation or the connection to others only by means of the tiny personal screen. And of course, the centrality of these devices to all of our actual lives, examples are surely unnecessary, suggests that a life um, largely mediated by these devices and by modern electronic media, media in general is increasingly what people really do want. Those of us trying to make a living in the theater probably need to be worried about this. Here are two perhaps idiosyncratic aspects of my own theater going. The first I've only noticed recently. I walk out of plays much more often than I do movies. I almost never leave a film before it's over, no matter how little I'm enjoying it. But if a play is boring me or getting on my nerves, I can't wait to walk out. I don't mean walk out in the sense of storming up the aisle in a huff. I just mean not coming back after intermission. The second I've experienced as long as I can remember. <clears throat> Nearly every time I go to a play as an audience member, I feel at some point a desire, however faint, to get up out of my chair and disrupt the performance, to shout to climb up on the stage. Sometimes I feel almost overwhelmed, not exactly by the urge to do this, because it has nothing to do with not liking what's on stage. It's not a heckling fantasy. But by the awareness that I could do it, and that anybody could. This precariousness, the knowledge that anybody in the room could alter or destroy the experience for anybody else in the room, isn't just a peculiarity of the form. It's almost the whole point. As software people say, not a bug, but a feature. I think it's probably exactly this sense of the fragile eventness of a play, the awareness that you're participating in something unique and created in the present moment, and that a very large number of unspoken assumptions and agreements are operating among the various members of the audience that accounts for my walking out thing that makes it harder for me to sit through a play that is not fully engaging. When I'm at a play, I have a more of an all or nothing feeling. I want to lose myself completely in the experience or I'd rather be at the bar having drinks. And this is also, I think, why intrusions feel so maddening. The ringing cell phone in the audience, the text being answered. They don't seem like simple forgetfulness or even bad manners. They feel like a rejection of the whole premise of the enterprise. Knowing that anyone can disrupt the event requires extra vigilance to ensure that no one will. If you don't care about exercising that vigilance, you may as well stay home. Yet, a few years ago, there I was in the fourth row of a Broadway theater, deep into the third act and hour of a revival of Long Day's Journey into Night, with the cell phone that I had neglected to turn off during intermission. I had no desire to leave this one. Going off. Luckily, I had left it on vibrate. Yet, I'm pretty sure that Vanessa Redgrave, working hard about 10 feet away, could hear it. Uh, a few years later, I directed her daughter, Jolie Richardson, in an off-Broadway play and was introduced to Vanessa at the opening night party where I could have asked her to confirm this. <laughs> I didn't. I wish I were immune to this disease. I know I should be, but I do feel a very strong need to stay connected. That's why I had checked my phone at intermission. Or rather, <clears throat> to put my own experience more precisely, I have an aversion to the slight but acute 
pang of loss, like one of my senses is being severed, that I experience when I shut off my iPhone or my home internet connection, the relief of which only comes when they're turned back on. I can proselytize for the rest of the afternoon about the ancient and irreplaceable bonds of community we forge when we engage in the act of theater, etc., but I am a lot more like the man in the office than I would like to admit. The Wizard of Oz used to be shown on American TV once a year. We'd wait for the annual date, I think it was around the end of March, and watch it. Yes, it was interrupted by commercials, but I still experienced the movie as an event, a single story unfolding in a two-hour block of time to which one's whole attention was devoted and which wouldn't recur, at least not for another year. When my own daughter was about four, she became devoted to The Wizard of Oz, which I showed her on DVD. But during the scary parts, which I got through as a kid by leaving the room and sitting on the cellar steps out of sight of the witch and the flying monkeys, but still within earshot where I could listen to the movie, we simply fast forwarded. Soon, and since we could put on the DVD whenever we wanted, we were also fast forwarding through the boring parts. <laughs> <clears throat> Inevitably, we were no longer watching the movie chronologically at all. We could skip directly to uh, a requested scene, forward or backward. I started to wonder if my four-year-old thought of The Wizard of Oz as a single narrative at all, a movie about a girl from Kansas who gets blown by a cyclone too, etc. Maybe to her, it was more like a collection of songs and vignettes, ones linked by a common location or theme and featuring the same repertory company of actors, but one that could be enjoyed in any order at all or in no order. This worried me. I didn't come of age with the internet. I'm 43, about as young as you can be without going through college <clears throat> with email. But if I was finding it hard to shut off my phone at a play, and this is my own profession for God's sake, what hope would my children have? Would they have anything like the same idea of a sustained narrative that I do? Would my kids still want to go to the theater as adults? Would there still be a theater for them to go to? Historically, <clears throat> different media don't actually tend to supplant one another. Radio didn't destroy the novel. Movies didn't end radio. Television didn't end the movies. But they do change one another, with the newer medium in particular forcing a change in how we use the earlier one and what we want from it. When television became widely available in the 1950s and threatened that era's twice or three times a week, movie going, the movies responded by supplying what the minuscule black and white TV screens could not, size, spectacle, widescreen imagery, etc. A decade or so later, the novelty of cinemascope epics and musicals had run its course, and larger color TVs had blunted their impact anyway, but mass-produced, nationally broadcast, advertiser-friendly content had made TV inane and bland. That opened up the space for movies in the late 1960s and early 70s to supply material that was different, grittier, verite-inspired photography, language more accurate to the way people speak, including profanity, moral ambivalence, more explicit sexuality, including nudity, and social critique. Today, the most popular and artistically ambitious material, at least in America, is again on TV, but now it is the long-form series like The Wire or Breaking Bad available on paid cable 
on DVD or on demand online. These series are not subject to the content restrictions of American network television. They have shorter seasons, 13 as opposed to 22 episodes, meaning that the creators face less risk of rapid artistic burnout. And yet their sprawling casts and extended length allow for much more patient and character-centered storytelling than do feature films. They also invite discussion on social networks, often in real, that is to say, broadcast time. This is how an acquaintance described the way his twin sons, teenagers, watch, though in this case the verb is totally inadequate, their favorite show, the zombie drama Walking Dead. <laughs> they make sure to view the initial broadcast of each episode in real time, the first time it's broadcast, together so as not to be exposed to any online spoilers. But each have a laptop open, and each laptop has at least two windows running, one with a Skype chat with other friends who are watching the show, one to a social network site and or a Twitter feed. Continuous discussion of the episode in progress is thus transacted in at least four and probably many more dimensions simultaneously. Again, note that feature films and network TV haven't gone away. American network TV has become mostly reality shows, sports, and talent contest programs. Major studio films are mostly comic book adaptations, fantasy, and action, often th shown in 3D or in IMAX format, suggesting a return to the studio's 1950s survival strategy. I consume and enjoy some of all of the above, but I'm also happy to have new alternatives. But apply this model to the theater, and the initial picture doesn't look cheering. In response to pressures from innovative new media, the old medium survives by, resor by resorting to spectacle and or restricting itself to material with very broad spectrum appeal. So as people use their mobile devices for a sense of shared community and increasingly for watching instantly downloadable long-form TV series, which are then discussed and dissected on social networks, the theater retrenches to big musicals, franchised spectacles, and short-run vehicles for TV and movie stars. This is, of course, very much what is happening, especially in New York. Not incidentally, producers and casting directors will tell you that the most sought-after stars for plays in New York are not, as you might think, the biggest movie names, but the cable series stars, because, of course, the theater-going audience is the same audience that gets sucked into these complex dramatic programs. The first play to land uh, John Hamm from Mad Men will make a fortune. I should really be writing it now. <laughs> On the other hand, as long as I'm thinking in mercenary terms, and I'm a working writer, there's no shame in that. What I should really be doing is writing the next Mad Men now. On the other hand, since surely the long-form TV dramas, and probably everything carried over a coaxial cable as opposed to streamed online, will be obsolete in a year or so, what I should actually be doing is figuring out what the kids with their laptops open in front of their flat screen TVs the kids who aren't comfortable unless they're navigating at least three streams of media input simultaneously will want next and try to provide that. But I'm not going to. I'm going to keep writing plays primarily because I like them and I like writing them, but also because despite everything, I do have a great deal of confidence that the theater will continue to exist and thrive. This confidence is based on a number of admittedly anecdotal bits of evidence. 
One is actually those teenage twins watching their zombie series with their laptops open. Not an image that suggests a great future for the theater per se, but surely a big improvement over the lonely man in the office. This, 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 these twins are still seeking two things that we look for from the theater, a live experience. They want to know that the show is unfolding for others along with them. And a communal experience. They want to watch it alongside and in communication with friends, even if those friends are not in the same room or even in the same city. Uh, another is from work that I've done teaching playwriting to New York City high school students. This program is self-selecting. The kids simply decide to attend, and they try writing plays for three hours or so a week after school. These students, as fully immersed in the social media video game matrix as it is possible to be, still seem to want to make theater. They seem drawn to it, not just as a social uh, experience, but as an opportunity for personal expression. And we bring in professional actors to read their plays at the end of the session. And the students see what happens when actors interpret their material. And this is the same thing that happens when actors perform live any playwright's work. The writer's language and ideas acquire a particularity and a vividness, an immediacy, a strangeness that the writer cannot anticipate no matter how many times they've been through this process. It is, every time, startling and uniquely exciting. And to be in a room with students who are experiencing this for the first time is to feel that writers and audiences will not easily let disappear opportunities for this to occur. Finally, <clears throat> there are my own children whose indifference to the pleasures of extended narrative are nowhere near as severe as I had once feared. They're still able to enjoy whole films watched, watched uninterrupted and unmediated. They're still able to be drawn into books and whole series of books. And at good plays, they seem even more fully absorbed. There's probably more than a, a little wishful thinking in this, but I'll propose it anyway. They like being taken to plays because it's a relief. It's a relief to have no competing media. It's a relief to be unconnected. It's a relief to have one's attention focused by the awareness of other people concentrating in the room around you and by the presence of the actors working on the stage. To return to the man in the office again, but this time to give him his due, perhaps he's groping for just this experience of sustained focus. He's probably had a long day at work. He's been navigating competing information streams in this office for 10 or 12 hours. He's been surrounded by dozens or hundreds of people who are occupying the same space and competing for and contributing to the same excess of input. Maybe it's thousands of people, everyone in all those open plan offices around him that the commercial has carefully shown us. And now at the end of the day, he finally has a moment to himself. And he's at least trying to give himself over to the total absorption, the transcendence that sustained narratives can provide. If I think he's choosing a silly place to do it or a silly thing to do it with, I can have that opinion. But as a working theater artist, it's probably my obligation to suggest better places for him to find what he's looking for. So I want to finish today by talking about two shows that have stayed most vivid in my memory over the last few years of theater going. <clears throat> 
One was not a play exactly, but I think it counts as theater. There's a hall called the Cooper Union in New York City where Abraham Lincoln gave a speech in 1860 that catapulted him to national prominence and made him a front runner in that year's presidential nomination. The hall still looks very much as it did in 1860. The podium where Lincoln spoke is still on its stage. And a few years ago, the actor Sam Waterston uh, performed Lincoln's Cooper Union speech behind that podium for an overflow audience. To get in, I had waited, uh, I think, more than two hours in a line outside that wrapped around the block. Waterston's accomplishment that day was not only embodying Lincoln and not the grave tragedy etched figure who's the usual Lincoln we get in dramatizations, but a youngish, combative, ambitious Western politician greedily seizing his chance to dazzle a jaded New York audience. Waterston made us see that Lincoln, and he made us feel the excitement of that 150-year-old East Coast debut, but he did more. In modern dress and sipping from a bottle of Evian water, Waterston drew his 21st century audience into the rhythms of 19th century political oratory. It was a very long speech. It took two and a half hours or so to deliver. And it was full of detailed constitutional argumentation and the arcana of 19th century political intraparty conflict. But Waterston made us feel how the rhythms of Lincoln's rhetoric created suspense, how the complicated structure built intellectual excitement as the carefully prepared argument slowly came together, how repetitions that on the page seemed long-winded or unnecessary or actually vehicles for humor, and so on. I didn't mention that um, this recreation was staged during the fall of a presidential election year. And the, the overwhelming feeling in the hall was of an audience who were accustomed to getting our political argumentation in the form of 30-second political ads and 140-character text bites, this audience drinking in, luxuriating in political argument that required and rewarded extended, concentrated attention. And at the end of the speech, everyone in the hall spontaneously leapt to their feet. I'm really the first time I've literally experienced this. We were applauding Watterson's performance in Lincoln's words, but I think we were also expressing gratitude for an experience that had at least temporarily restored a capacity that we'd forgotten we had. A New York company called Elevator Repair Service performed a play last year at the public theater in New York called Gats. Um, it wouldn't be quite right to call this an adaptation of The Great Gatsby because the text for the show consists of the entire novel, The Great Gatsby, spoken aloud by a single actor. The setting, incongruously, is um, uh, an office, a very slightly antiquated, like sort of early 1980s workplace, and a company of actors who portray office workers first ignore their colleague who has, begun, who has taken a book out of his desk drawer and begun to read aloud from it, but then gradually they become the characters in the book, Gatsby, uh, Jordan, Nick, Daisy. Gradually the office is no longer an office, but Long Island and Manhattan in the 1920s. You hear the entire book. The show lasts about six hours. And we in the audience are 
drawn along with the characters, we have this experience of being drawn back, as Fitzgerald says, ceaselessly into the past. I've seen plenty of other good plays in the last few years, but, but those two have stayed with me in a particular way, along with a few others, like that production of Long Day's Journey Into Night, despite the cell phone incident, and another I'll mention called Sleep No More, which is a, 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 an immersive, site-specific uh, adaptation of Macbeth. I think that all these shows really have in common was that they were long, um, two and a half, three hours, and much longer in some cases. And I certainly don't think that the only theater worth doing in the age of Twitter is very long plays. Uh, uh, my own plays are of conventional length, two hours or so, and I encourage you to buy tickets to them as often as you can. <laughs> but what I do find is that the more my own attention is battered by modern information technology, the more, the more I experience the theater as a relief and certain kinds of theater as a particularly rehabilitating escape, a place where my fractured attention, my crippled concentration, my punch-drunk, hyperlinked, multitask consciousness can be at least partially restored. And I am betting my livelihood on the belief that I'm not the only one who will increasingly look to the theater for that restoration. Thank you.